0: Esther. We'll start in chapter 3. Esther, chapter 3. On February 18th, 1997, about 25 years ago, three teenagers ages 13, 16, and 17 went to a high school basketball game not far away in Montgomery County. And despite the 17-year-old or basically 17-year-old seemingly being way too young to have a driver's license, at least that's how I feel now, this 17-year-old had the keys to his father's brand new truck. And that brand new truck would serve as a ride home for the 13 and 16-year-old brothers. But the car never made it home that night. This is the report of the car ride. Just seconds after pulling out of the high school parking lot, the teenage driver grew impatient with a car that was puttering in front of him, a compact vehicle that was puttering in front of him. And so this big truck tried to pass this tinkering compact vehicle facing traffic in a one-lane road. And as he tried to pass, he was, over the next half mile or so, sort of this immense truck and this microscopic car, relatively speaking, got sucked into an impromptu drag race with the car being on the right-hand side, going with traffic but speeding up, and the truck being on the left-hand side, facing traffic, speeding up. Suddenly, the compact vehicle slows down, evidently conceding defeat, and the older, well, I guess you could say the bigger, uh, adolescent truck driver sends victory and swerved back into his lane, still looking over his right shoulder to see why the car had stopped and, and, and didn't realize as he was looking over his shoulder that he was approaching a busy intersection. Braking wouldn't stop at this, wouldn't help at this point. Braking didn't help at this point as the truck piled into three other vehicles at the stoplight. Subsequent police reports indicated that the truck was going 87 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. And the the skid marks that were caused by the car, the collision measured 100, or that is prior to the collision, measured 136 feet. All three teenagers in the crash survived. Everyone else in the crash survived. Everyone stepped away from their cars without any serious injuries. Now today, these once tight-knit teenagers, all are about 40-something years old, they've all gone their separate ways, they all really barely talk to one another. But my guess would be that if you were to reunite the three today, today, and ask them about their accident, ask them the best explanation for their survival on that really tragic night, my guess would be that all of them would say, divine intervention. Given the speed that they were traveling, and given the force of their collision, it could be reasonably argued that none of those once teenagers should be alive today. We thank God for preserving life like this. We thank God, I thank God, for preserving my life that night. I was the 16-year-old. My brother Emmanuel was the 13-year-old. And my friend T was the 17-year-old whose parents only lost a truck that night. Now, going through a near-death experience, a near-death experience, helps you reflect on some things that you you might already know, but you, you really learn them when you go through an experience like this, right? Our head knowledge becomes even more of a reality when we go through these types of situations. Through my experience, I really learned that life and death is in the hands of God. God created all people in his image, and only God has the right to determine when life comes into being and when life ends. I really learned that God preserves life to accomplish his purposes, whether whether people really know exactly what's going on or not. I really learned that God sometimes works most powerfully behind the scenes without being noticed. God works by providentially guiding circumstances, the circumstances of a given situation without being directly invoked or sometimes even noticed. God sometimes works by providentially guiding the circumstances of a given situation. I remember vividly telling my brother before we left that parking lot, put on your seatbelt. He said, I can't find it. I said, find it and put it on. I don't know why. If, If we were in a smaller truck, Maybe the, conse- maybe, maybe, maybe the accident would have been different. If we were going a little bit faster or if the impact would have been in a different part of the car, maybe the results of the accident would have been different. But God maneuvers situations and circumstances to carry out his purposes in many cases that are completely undetected by human beings. And it's only sometimes after a given situation that it becomes possible to look back at a given situation and see the sovereign hand of God guiding the circumstances related to a particular event. And there's no other biblical book in which we see this reality more evident than in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is filled with all types of engaging literary techniques like like foreshadowing or, or gaps in the story, Irony and maybe even some parody, and there's tons of lessons to be learned in the individual sections of the narrative. But by the end of the book, there's one reality that really sticks out in terms that's crucial in terms of salvation history. What is it? The salvation of the Jewish people. Okay? And here's the irony. Here's what's deliberate, here's what's deliberately contrary to what we might expect. The Old Testament covenant people are saved without the covenant name, that is some of your Bibles say Yahweh or Jehovah, that covenant name, without that name or the title of God ever being mentioned in the book, ever. And in this, just in this, the book of Esther, we can see that the book of Esther provides contemporary believers, contemporary readers, this, of the same God, contemporary believers in the same God, a framework by which we can see how God providentially works through people to carry out his purposes and his promises, sometimes without even being noticed. Let's begin by reading Esther chapter 3. I hope you're there already. We'll start by reading verses 1 through 7, and we'll skip to verse 13, which is where the major conflict of the book begins. And then after reading, we're going to backtrack a little bit Provide a little bit of historic inform- historical information before continuing through the narrative. Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down, down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of king Ahasuerus, They cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then we see how wicked Haman's murderous plot goes into effect in verse 13. So if you skip down to verse 13, we read, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Let's pray. We are grateful, God, for the privilege of being able to open up your word in public and, and expect to hear from you. And we, we, we ask as your children now that you would speak to us through your word, Lord, that you would help us to recognize how your word not only spoke back then, but continues to speak now, into the life of the church, and into our individual circumstances. Lord, we read your word expectantly, and we ask that you would meet us here. In Jesus' name, we come before you. Amen. Now, imagine a holiday in which you could wear a costume, or children would wear a costume, and wander around the neighborhood in these festive outfits, and receive sweets from all over the place. Now, of course, you're thinking, Dr. Dominic, you don't need a Ph.D. for this. Haven't you ever heard of Halloween? Yeah, but imagine a Halloween without ghosts or zombies or gore. Imagine like the best parts of Halloween, you know, like sweets and costumes. And imagine something like this with biblical grounds to celebrate. Well, this holiday actually exists. It's called Purim. Or at least that's how Purim is celebrated by the worldwide Jewish community on either the 14th or the 15th day of the Jewish month of Adar, depending uh, upon where someone lives. Or or that particular Jewish person lives. People dress up on Purim because Purim is a day of celebration. And it's commemorated by both religious and non-religious Jewish people, though a little bit differently. But, But this is the day in which the Jewish people celebrate the salvation of their people group as it is depicted in the biblical book of Esther. In fact, one of the ways in which the salvation of the Jewish people is people celebrate so celebrated on es- or during this uh, time of Purim is by the reading of Megillat Esther, or the entire book of Esther, the entire scroll of Esther in one sitting in its entirety. And it's through reading this scroll, the entirety of the scroll in one sitting, that the Jewish people are reminded of the salvation of their ancestors from the hand of their from the hands of their enemies and especially from the hand of wicked Haman. In fact, every time Haman's name is mentioned in the public reading of Megillat Esther, the book of Esther, those in attendance, boo, boo, every time the name is boo, like good Eagles fans, boo. <laughs> and, they rattle, and and people rattle these noisemakers to make sure that, uh, to, to demonstrate their displeasure with the name and the memory of Haman. Along with reading the entirety of the book of Esther, Jewish people celebrate with all types of festive activities, you know, dressing up, shaking the, or eating oznehaman, these cookies that you see, and shaking the noisemaker. They're called the Rashan. And, and then they sing songs, you know, like this. Shoshanat Yaakov, Samecha. I'll spare you. But the words are on the next couple of slides translated. Shoshanat Yaakov is the people of Israel. It's a, it's a, it's a nickname for the people of Israel. They rejoice and became overjoyed when they saw Mordecai wearing royal blue. And then the next, next slide says, their salvation was from eternity and their hope is from generation to generation. Blessed is, or blessed be Mordecai the Jew. Blessed be Mordecai the Jew, right? This is, this is a festive celebration. Uh, this is a big deal. Why would people sing this song? What is this making reference to on Purim? Well, in order to understand this, in order to understand even the the reason for the holiday Purim or the word Purim, we have to know a little bit about the history and the setting of the book of Esther. The historical setting of the book of Esther goes all the way back to the 6th century before Christ, okay? So in the 6th century before Christ, that's when many Jewish people, if you'll see on the next slide, many Jewish people from Jerusalem were taken into exile by the Babylonians in about 586 B.C., And within about 70 years, the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians, as you'll see on the next slide, which brings us to the time period in which the book of Esther takes place, the Persian period. And the beginning of the book of Esther, if you just flip back a couple of pages from Esther chapter 3 to Esther chapter 1, you'll read that the beginning of the book of Esther tells us a bit more about the setting of the book of Esther, Here's what we read in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, now just, to, just briefly I'll say that's modern-day Iran, in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast For all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So here we observe, just in the first couple verses of the book, that the king of Persia of this time is Ahasuerus, the Persian king Ahasuerus, and his kingdom is humongous. You saw the previous slide, spanning from East Asia through Africa, Africa through East Asia, 127 provinces, says the writer of the book of Esther. And in the third year of his reign, he has a big party, okay? He throws a big feast, and we're told that all the kingdom's aristocrats are there at the king's palace in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And it's during this festival that, for unstated reasons, there's a gap in the text here, for unstated reasons, the king, Ahasuerus, he calls his wife the Queen Vashti, to come and appear before him in her royal crown. Now, we don't know why. But also, we don't know that why the next part happened, and that is Vashti, for unstated reasons, again, there's a gap in the text. She refuses to come before the king, and that absolutely enrages him. All right, and so, based upon the counsel of his friends, the king divorces Vashti. Now, here's some irony. Ironically... This mighty king, Ahasuerus, is depicted, you know, this guy that 127 provinces from from East Asia through Africa, he's depicted as being a little bit of a weak imbecile here because, in, in this scene and in others to come, why? Because he reigns over all of these kingdoms, but he can't even get his wife to come see him, right? And so he divorces her. He divorces his wife at the council of his friends, but then he immediately is depicted as missing his wife. And so he asks these same friends to find him another one, right? And in an act that's disconcerting at best, the king's servants travel around the city and sort of gather up the most attractive maidens. That's disconcerting, right? So that the kid, king can just sort of choose from one of these other women to be his wife. And that's when Mordecai and Hadassah come on the scene. If you look at chapter 2, verse 7, we know Hadassah by the name Esther, but Hadassah is Esther's real Hebrew language or Jewish name. In chapter 2, verse 7, we read the relationship between the two, and that he, that is Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had uh, neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And then we read what happened to Esther as the king's servants went around Susa and rounded up the beautiful women of the city. In the next verse, we read that so when the king's order and edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, this is where things get pretty interesting in the story, right? Because when Esther is taken into into the custody of the king, she is explicitly commanded by her cousin Mordecai to not reveal her identity as a Jew, twice— in chapter 2 verse 10 and in chapter 2 verse 20 he says do not reveal your identity as a jewish person and we're not told as readers why she's told not to reveal her identity another gap in the story but this point combined with the fact that the king eventually falls in love with Esther and wants to marry Esther and then marries Esther without knowing that her full identity is a jewish person right this Foreshadows the problem that will arise when it is revealed that this imbecile king is married to a Jewish person. And the, the potential for a major problem increases upon the events depicted in the passage that we read today in chapter 3. See, in Esther chapter 3, Haman the Agagite is promoted to a position of second-in-command in the kingdom of Ahasuerus. And upon taking this office... The king commands that the king commands that all should bow down and pay homage to Haman. But again, for reasons un, unexplained in the text, Mordecai refuses to bow down, but reveals that he's a Jew. In chapter three, verse four. I mean, talk about the unexpected, right? He does exactly what he tells Esther not to do. She he tells her not to reveal that she's a Jew, and then he reveals in the very next chapter that he's a Jewish person. Now, the the narrator of the book of Esther has us guessing a little bit, like, what's going on with all of these gaps in information? But we have a clue here relating to this imminent conflict in the book of Esther. Mordecai's revelation as a Jewish person is mentioned together with his refusal to bow down to Haman, right? Now, all of us that are somewhat familiar with the Ten Commandments know that the second commandment explicitly states the following. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Notice I said water like someone from Philly. (laughs) Notice the next phrase. You shall not bow to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's the Exodus the second command in in, in the Exodus account. So perhaps, perhaps, I mean we're guessing a little bit because the narrator doesn't give us all the information that we want, but perhaps Mordecai admits that he's a Jew and refuses to bow down to the Persian leader because he refused to treat this Persian leader like God, like he was God. But the narrator never tells us, and so we continue to read, just waiting for this imminent conflict that comes almost immediately. Haman hates the fact that That not everyone will bow down to him. He develops a personal hatred for Mordecai and he develops an irrational hatred for the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who Mordecai had implicated through admitting that he was a Jew. And so Haman casts lots. One lot is Pure or pur in Hebrew. It's not actually a Hebrew word, but it's pur. That's what you read in the Hebrew. And in the plural, it's purim. And that's where purim comes from. It's from the casting of lots. He casts lots in order to determine the dreadful day in which the Jewish people would be put to death as we read in chapter 3, verse 7. And it's coldly determined that all the Jews in, the ki- in all the kingdom of Ahasuerus in the 127 provinces from Africa to Asia would be put to death on the 13th day of the month of Adar, almost a year after the casting of lots. And through all of this, God is not mentioned in the narrative at all. God is apparently not present. God's personal name, his personal name that he revealed exclusively to the people of Israel, right, is not even mentioned once. God's titles not mentioned once. At a time when the covenant people needed their God the most, he is apparently nowhere to be found. Now, Christian, the almost palpable absence of God that we sense as we read this text calls us to reflect upon the absence of God's presence that we tangibly sense in our lives at times. Christian, many times in our lives we feel desperate, physically or emotionally destitute. Perhaps we even feel like we're physically or emotionally dying, right? Spiritually dying, and we need God the most, and God's nowhere to be found. God's absent. God is not there we feel. But here's a principle that we read throughout reading the book of Esther and especially through the rest of the book from chapter 3 onward. Sometimes when situations look dire and sometimes when we're going through difficult situation and God seems to be conspicuously absent, God's right there. God's right there working everything together for his glory. And sometimes when we have absolutely no assurance that God even cares about a given situation because there's simply no awareness of his presence. He's right there, inextricably involved in the situation, just not revealing the details of his involvement. And so here's the, like, this is the amazing thing that we, that we have to be appreciative of as we read the book of, this, or the book of Esther, or this particular narrative. What we're appreciative of as contemporary readers, right, thousands of years removed, is that God gives us, contemporary readers, insight into a past occasion in which he is inextricably involved in human affairs to carry out his purposes for the sake of the glory of his name and the growing of his kingdom, and he's not mentioned. And in this divi- it is this divine providence that we as readers start to see as God, without being named or even officially credited with any of the actions, shapes the circumstances of our lives and, the, as, and so that he might be able to accomplish his purposes. So as we read this narrative, we are privileged with the opportunity to reflect upon how God might be using specific circumstances in our lives in every single one of our lives, to accomplish his purposes, whether we're aware of it or not. So let's look specifically at a few circumstances in our story that show the, 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 that, that are clearly, divi- or clearly, we could say, uh, guided by the divine hand. Okay? It just so happened in the book of Esther that Esther, out of all the women found favor in the eyes of the king, right? Out of all the women that were gathered up, it just so happened that Esther, right? And it just so happened that Esther, the one who found favor in the eyes of the king, was a Jew. It just so happened. And it just so happened that Esther, the one who found favor in the eyes of the king, who was a Jew, had direct access to the king because of her position as queen. It just so happened. Now, we have no idea how many women were taken into the courts of the king, but this specific one, a Jew, could approach the king in a privileged manner, right? It just so happened that Esther and Mordecai were related. And it just so happened that disobedient Mordecai, at least to Haman, right? Disobedient Mordecai had access to the Persian throne through the orphan cousin that he raised. Now, out of all the women that the king could have married... That's what's depicted early on, right? The king could have married whoever he wanted. He divorced his wife. Go round up other women. That's what's depicted, right? Out of all the women that the king could have married, out of all the women that could have had access to the throne, it turns out that the one that he married was not only a Jewish person herself, but closely related to the person who would not obey the king's command by bowing down to Haman. Oh, by the way, it just so happened. Now, all of this is key to tracking the story in Esther. Because upon hearing the plans of the slaughter of the Jewish people, Mordecai dresses in clothes representing mourning, and he goes to the king's entrance, or the king's the entrance of the king's gate. And this permitted him to have very access to his very cousin, Queen Esther, who he convinces to help her own people, the Jews, as we see in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. In these verses... We read, that, we read Mordecai's message to Esther, which is a plea not only for personal help, but a plea for the lives of her people, their people. This is what Mordecai says to Queen Esther. He says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than, than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, release, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That is Esther. Don't forget you are a Jew as well. Esther, you too will feel the effects of Wicked Haman's plot to kill us. But Queen Esther, it just so happens that you've been placed in a position of power and influence for the sake of helping vulnerable people right now. Esther, in turn goes and reports to the king. And she reveals that she's a Jewish person. She reveals Wicked Haman's plot to kill the Jewish people. She reveals that that would also affect her. And all this is revealed, much to the surprise of Haman, who's taken away, though he's pleading for his life, and is either hung or impaled. The Hebrew is a little uh, confusing there. He's put to death. But redemption for the Jewish people still doesn't come according to the traditions we read in chapter eight according to the traditions of the Persians another decree needed to be established that specifically contradicted the King's previous directive and so we read that happen in chapter 8 verse 11 where we read that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy to kill and to annihilate an armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And by this, the preservation of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire was accomplished. It was accomplished on the very same day that Haman planned for their destruction. For the Jewish people, this was cause for great celebration. And that's why the holiday of Purim was instituted. As you can see in chapter 9, verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at, the t- and at the time appointed every year, right? And so now we understand the reason for celebrating Purim, the day Haman determined by the casting of the lots, the Purim, to, to put the Jews, to, 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 to annihilate the Jews. This was the day that turned out to be great salvation and celebration for the Jewish people. But where's God in all of this? God's not mentioned, remember? No name, no title. Apparently, he's not present. Salvation, think about this. Salvation for the covenant people, the Jewish people, comes about. And God is not mentioned to even take credit for it. At a time when the Jewish people needed God the most, right? Where is their covenant God? Wasn't he always supposed to be there for them? All right, let's deal with this question for a second. The reality of our story is the following. Despite what some traditions, like Hollywood traditions, might suggest concerning how honorable Esther and Mordecai were, there are some simple observations of the depictions of these characters in the text that might help us understand why God may not be mentioned in the book. A couple of examples here. There there seems to be no concern for Jewish law by either one of the main characters, right? For example, unlike Daniel, Esther doesn't seem to demonstrate any particular concern for dietary laws when she's taken into the court of the Gentile king. Daniel does, Esther doesn't. Esther conceals her Jewish identity. She lies by omission. Mordecai tells her to do it. She lies by omission when she's taken into the court by the command or when she's taken into the court of the king. The implication here is that Esther would have had to violate the Torah, right? She would have had to violate purity laws. She would have had to violate the Sabbath. She would have had to violate food laws because those are the things that would have made her distinctly Jewish or demonstrated that she's Jewish. Those are the distinct things that would have demonstrated that she's Jewish. And it's not until there's severe danger or even maybe a threat from her uncle Mordecai that Esther reveals her true identity, right? And probably the most, maybe the most obvious or disturbing, I guess you could say, is that Esther marries a Gentile king after spending the night with him. So, check this out: intermarriage is with non-Israelite people is not explicitly forbidden in the Bible, insofar as those non-Israelite people became or were followers of the of the God of Israel but there is no indication that the king of Persia had any intent of following the one true God of Israel. He is depicted as a pagan. So we take these observations into consideration, and it doesn't seem like Esther or Mordecai are particularly interested in following the law that God gave the people. It doesn't seem like Esther or Mordecai were especially interested, I guess we could say, in inviting God into their narrative. This presents a perfect opportunity for our sovereign God, the God of Israel, to demonstrate to all people who would become familiar with this story that he's in control. Right? God demonstrates his ability to control all circumstances and situation for his glory. To what end? Why did God save the Jewish people when, quite frankly, he's not even invited into the story by the main characters here? God does not save people because they are extraordinary in and of themselves. God does not save people because they promise him that they will be good. God saves people because he is a magnificent God. God saves people because in this, he demonstrates his extraordinary love for humankind, despite all of us, all of us, by our nature, not inviting him into our stories. This is what happened in the first Purim festival, I guess we could say, right? God saved the people, as covenant people, from their enemies, not because they were extraordinary in and of themselves. God saved the people because he was and is an extraordinary, faithful God who keeps his promises. Christian, this should drive us to praise. You see, all the way back, 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 page three of your Bible, right? At the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Go to chapter 12. God starts to promise Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And then and this happens, right? God starts, we start to see how this develops and how this unrolls. God chooses Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. Again, not because of anything that they did, but for the purposes of God. Read Romans 9. And as we continue to read through the Old Testament, we see that Jacob, who was eventually renamed Israel, he had 12 sons. And out of these 12 sons of Israel, his son Judah, the name from where we get the title Jewish, right? Judah was was chosen to bear the royal lineage. King David came from the people of Judah. You ever hear that guy? And Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of all humankind, was a descendant of King David through the tribe of Judah. King Jesus was promised to come from the Jews came to the Jews, came to the Jews, and through the Jews to all humanity. God was determined to carry out his promise of bringing blessing to all nation through the Jewish people by way of the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. One writer states it like this. Esther is a part of a much larger story that runs all the way from Abraham to Christ and through him to the church. If Haman had succeeded, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed. And the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants would have come to an end. There would have been no fulfillment in Christ and therefore no gospel and no Christian church. Nothing less than that was at stake. Our God is a God who keeps his word. God's integrity is not contingent upon human beings. Our God does not and cannot let his word fail. Our God is willing to work providentially behind the scenes of humanity's vain inactivity and inattentiveness to his work in order to carry out what he has promised. This should drive us to praise. The book of Esther, because of this, is part of our heritage as Christian people. It's not just because it's a small book tucked away at some part of the Bible where books are difficult to find. Not just because of that. No, right? It's because it's another part of the greater story showing God's love for humanity by bringing someone from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David to save humanity from their problem of sin. Now, the fact is that God is not mentioned by name or by title in the book of Esther seems to point out that it's almost as if this book were written for us to know or for later readers to know that it's during those times of silence, especially during those times of silence, times in which we don't overtly see God's hands at work, times in which we feel that, that God is not around, right? It's those times when God is most active, and sometimes God is simply active in the act of preserving, saving lives so that he might accomplish things through and in us. That's what he did in the book of Esther, just preserved. I think back on my, my personal story, and all of us have our personal stories, but I think about my, my car accident. And, and, and surely you have a story like that. You could think about it right now, a story in which your life could have been changed like that. I think about my, my car accident. What would, what, what would have become, you know, if I, if I had died, right? If I died in that car accident, I, I would have died without ever being really serious about my relationship with Christ, which didn't really happen until I was in college at Westchester University, by the way. I'm a local. I mean, I would have never gone to college. I would have never gone to grad school. You know, all these things that we talked about. I would have never studied the PhD while living in... No, none of that, but But hold on. It, it, I would have never had the opportunity to, to serve as a, as a pastor and, and maybe play a small part in the training of Hebrew speaking, English speaking, and Spanish speaking Bible college students for ministry. And, and what's important about that is that our aspiration is that those people that we train would go and affect the world way more than we ever could, right? My, that's my prayer, that all these people would affect the world for Christ more, way more than I could ever affect the world for Christ, just because of who God is and what, how he uses people, sometimes without them even knowing. Had I died in that car accident, I would have never had the privilege of, of, of meeting my wife, uh, obviously, which didn't happen until we were in college, but uh, I, w- I would have never had the opportunity to bring two children into the world, who you'll see on these pictures. I have a couple of other pictures of them. And, you know, the, the, the reason for showing this is because, again, the hope here is that these children would affect the world for the cause of Christ more than we ever could, Right? Things would have changed had we died in that car accident. But the, and in this, we see that the preserving power of God in your life, in my life, in, in all of our stories, and all of our situations, it's not just limited to one people group that he used for a particular purpose. Yes, he used the Jewish people in a distinct way, but my car accident is just one way for me to reflect upon God's providence. But you have ways in your life in which you can reflect upon God's providence and how he's preserved and saved you for his purposes and what has come of your life and what can become of your life because of who God is and because of what he can do. Surely at least one, two situations like this, like my accident, that has demonstrated that God has kept you on this earth for his great purposes, to be part of his sovereign plan, to bring glory to him. We are all benefactors of God's providence. As God guides all circumstances for his glory, we as human beings are are able to see what God does in and through people, including ourselves. Reading through the book of Esther is an occasion in which we, contemporary Christians, remember and we celebrate God's promises to humankind by saving the ancestry of Jesus, the Messiah, Savior of the world. It's by reading this book. Now, reading this book is an occasion to praise God, not just saving one particular, not just for saving one particular people group, but more importantly, because of saving humanity. By, by permitting his son to come to the world and thereby keeping his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are grateful that you are a God that keeps your word. We are grateful that despite our inattentiveness to your work and sometimes just our lack of knowledge, you continue to work things together for your glory. Lord, we, we, we confess that now, we recognize that, and we pray, God, that as we continue to live for you, that you would empower us to walk with you, whether or not we actually sense your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.